Welcome to another episode of The Quantified Body. I'm your host, Damien Blinkinsop. Quick shout out and thank you for yet another iTunes review. This is from Notting Hill Billy from the United Kingdom. He says, this is an excellent podcast with some top-notch guests from the world of health science, particularly exceptional interview with Dr. Thomas Seafried. Keep up the good work, Damien. I love to get all feedback, either by email, damien at thequantifiedbody.net, or by iTunes reviews, that really helps our ranking too. Go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash iTunes, or just write it straight into iTunes, the review. It really, really does help me to modify, optimize this show, and you know I love optimization and making things better. So, today's subject, understanding blood sugar regulation and dysregulation better. I'm sure a lot of you are aware of this and concerned of it if you haven't already been tracking your blood glucose or your ketones and so on through some of the self-experiments we've done. There's a lot of lessons on optimization of this area, and I've got a fair number of interviews coming up talking about it because it's such a serious issue today. Something else we're looking at today is hacking medical devices. Basically, this means not waiting for the technology to arrive from big companies. We're talking about here the DIY spirit that some people are taking towards technology, and they're making real use of technology today right now, and they're not waiting for it to come to the mass market. We'll also be looking at open loop and closed loop systems technologies. This is a different approach to using direct feedback to optimize ourselves, our biology. And as you see that, that's pretty exciting. And we'll look at both of those scenarios in today's blood sugar regulation area. And finally, of course, the value of N equals one experimentation as today's guest is an N equals one experimenter. We'll be looking at blood sugar regulation through the lens of diabetes. Now, of course, this is the main disease associated with blood sugar dysregulation. And this means that we'll be looking at more of an extreme case. This can often be helpful, though, to finding really useful tools because when you are managing something like diabetes, you have to take it a lot more seriously and you have to manage it more closely and thus you learn more about it. So today's episode Even if you are not diabetic, I'm sure there's a certain number of you out there because it's very common today, it will still be very, very useful. I found it incredibly useful myself. And one of the reasons for this is that even if you are not type 1 or type 2 diabetic, you most probably have some level of blood sugar dysregulation, unless you've checked it and you're cool with that. What I'm saying here is it may not be optimum. You may have suffered some metabolic damage along the way and your blood sugar doesn't quite self-regulate as well as it could. Now, if you wanted to test this yourself, you could do a simple blood glucose test and see what your post-meal blood sugar is one and two hours after meals. And so if it was over 120 milligrams per deciliter, it may be something you need to look into further. As you may have accumulated some damage, you may be moving more towards the spectrum of diabetes, diabetes 2 most likely. So today we're going to learn from diabetes 1 management. And this is, of course, the most challenging form of diabetes. But And what works for this is often applicable to your own blood sugar management optimization and managing blood sugar dysregulation in general. Today's guest is Tim Omer. He's a guy in the UK who got frustrated with the limitations and stresses of having to manage his own diabetes one condition, and he just set out to fix it. He's an N equals one experiment, and he's made a lot of progress in this area, so he's really improved his own life through better information and levering the technologies that exist. He's not doing this in isolation either. You'll also learn in this episode about the community who's working to build 
a bionic pancreas. That's a closed loop system or potentially an open loop system, which can manage insulin release automatically or semi-automatically. So it's set really to replace the broken part of the body, the pancreas going forward, which is pretty exciting stuff. You can learn more about that at hashtag we are not waiting on Twitter, for example. And Tim will also give us some other highlights and other things to look up in the show. I came across Tim through a article in The Guardian, which talked about what he was up to and his blog hypodiabetic.co.uk, where he talks about his journey and his updates. So we'll put those in the show notes as well as all the other references he talks about. I'm going to try out a little experiment with this podcast. As you may know, this hasn't been published as frequently lately, and it's just because I'm really busy and I don't really have the resources to put to this all the time, but I would love to publish more of them. So the question is, would some of you out there like to sponsor the podcast? Put another way, do you have a great product or service that you'd like to get in front of more people just like you? And as I said, this is an experiment. I don't know if this is going to go ahead. We'll see what the response is. I'm really looking for things that I feel are great products and services and that I believe in also, so I can give those more airtime on the show. So please let me know by contacting me via email. Damien, D-A-M-I-E-N, at verquantifiedbody.net, or you can hit me up on Twitter at biohack. Okay, and that's it for all of the intro stuff. Let's get into this interview. Hope you enjoy it. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. That's okay. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so I want to dive straight into it. Why are you interested in monitoring your blood sugar? What is it about you personally that's motivated you to do this and it's important to you? Well, obviously, for me, being a type 1 diabetic, uh, knowing my blood sugars is very, very useful. And I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about diabetes itself in a moment. But the main reason why I went and got a CGM was the fact that I managed to acquire an insulin pump by the NHS. Now, the insulin pump, I got that because I was going to go traveling, and it allowed me to have one type of insulin with me. But the insulin pump has a lot of configuration. A lot of people... The attitude generally is a diabetic gets an insulin pump, therefore they must be cured. It behaves like a pancreas. We couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, getting an insulin pump is just making your condition that much more complicated, but gives you that much more flexibility to manage your diabetes. Okay, so what's the difference between an insulin pump? We'll have to dive into diabetes now so people yeah, understand the importance of all this stuff. But let's just talk about the insulin mechanism for a second here. So when you're a diabetic whether it's diabetes one or two, you're using insulin at times to help you stay in the right blood sugar zone. Is that correct? As a basic summary, so you, you, everyone has a pancreas, pancreas produces insulin, and, and in very simple terms, the insulin converts uh, food you consume into energy. It's a very, very simple explanation of that. You have two types of diabetes, type uh, two that you hear in the press, and it's generally in all the newspapers about the higher costs to the NHS for management, etc., and to be able to it's a real issue for the Western world right now. Uh, type 2 is where you have a, a pancreas that's just not performing as well as it could be. So you generally, you are still producing insulin, but not enough to sustain your lifestyle. And that's mostly managed by diet and exercise, and typically caused by a lack of decent diet and exercise. 
So that's the majority of the diabetic world is um, type 2. Now, type 1 is where your pancreas basically packs in completely. You do not produce any insulin. And to replace your pancreas, most diabetics go on to injections. And there's two types of injections. There's one, uh, we'll give a rapid-acting insulin. So when I consume food, I need to take the right amount of insulin for that food to accommodate the food coming in. But also, my body requires a background amount of insulin, like a, a basal. So uh, over 24 hours, a slow release in insulin. And that's another injection that diabetics take. So they take that once or twice a day, and it kind of gives them a slow release in insulin. Okay. So those are kind of two different types? That's the two different types, correct. And again, for a diabetic, type 1 is the balancing act. How do I give myself enough insulin to cover what my body requires and the food I consume? But how do I avoid giving myself too much? So I've, uh, um, I end up with very low blood sugar levels because I give myself too much insulin, what can result in you passing out, going to a coma, and potentially death. Or if you don't take enough insulin, very high blood sugar levels, uh, long-term complications so associated with that, blindness, losing limbs, etc. generally feel. Do you know what the rough values are you're supposed to, where are the extremes you're supposed to stay out of? So basically, as a non-diabetic, you're usually sitting around 4.5. I believe, I may be wrong here, uh, minimals uh, of blood sugars per something. Anyway, number's 4.5. That is, yeah, number 4.5 is correct. Yeah, what the actual measurement is. That's the, that is correct. That is correct. It's millimolar. Yeah. These are actually UK measurements because a lot of people at home are used to the milligram per deciliter. So while you're explaining that, I'm now going to look up a little calculator so that we can translate Please this. do. That would be great to assist you on that one. I can say 4.5. Beyond that, I don't really care much more. It's just a number I'm looking at. So 4.5 is kind of like the holy number, the holy growl I'm going after. I don't really want that to go much below 4 for me as a, as a person. So this does kind of slightly change on every diabetic as well. Uh, but for me personally, anything below kind of 3.5, I start to suffer. My performance degrades. Basically, a lot of people associate it with being drunk. And so as you go below 3.5, I, I suffer. Anything I'd say below 2 or 1.5, we're entering real kind of danger territory. Personally, I've been quite lucky. I'm not, I'm, my blood sugars have gone quite low, um, as it does happen with all diabetics. And I've been okay, but it can be quite dangerous going that low. On the upper scale, my aim is to stay below 7. Anything below 11 is acceptable now and then. You really don't want to go much above 11. But throughout a day you can jump between those two values multiple times. It, a diabetes is, type 1 diabetes is very much a real-time situation. You, know, you feel the impact if you make a mistake pretty quickly. Okay, for lovers of the metric system, <laughs> I don't know if we're going to move everything to metrics one day, maybe. It would be really awesome if the world just used one system. So the values that Tim just gave out there, so the lower value was 1.5 millimolars, so that's what you want to stay out of if you don't want to go into a coma is 27 milligrams per deciliter. That's pretty pretty damn low. So for comparison, when I was doing my fast, I was in uh, 55, and I think I bottomed out around 50 milligrams per deciliter with very high ketones, which is a different situation. With it. So obviously another energy source supporting me. What you're aiming for, Tim, was 4.5 millimolar, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so that's 81. 81 milligrams per deciliter, and I think we, we all know that's a pretty good range. You know, people talk about 75 to 80 as an ideal range there diabetes too and just people in general and then uh seven was your upper range where you kind of go to sometimes and you try and stay below is that right mm -hmm. yeah so that's 126 milligrams per deciliter so it kind of fits as well if you've had a meal and, and so on you expect it to go up to about that 
and then uh, drive back down. So even when you've had a meal, you're still trying to stay roughly below that or just have that as a top upper limit of where you bounce up to? Well, in an idle world, you always be um, hitting the idle number. Um, but the reality is, is, is just, just not possible. Even as a non-diabetic, your blood sugar is going to spike, especially the Western diet we're kind of fed upon and believed to be good for us is generally quite bad for your blood sugar levels, hence the increase in type 2 diabetes. Which we're going to discuss soon. <laughs> well, yes, we can discuss more. So as an example, I know we're going to touch on this more, but my artificial pancreas app I'm using right now, so in the US, um, was it again milligram per deciliter? Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's the first time I've ever heard the breakout of that, that actually means. So the high value I'm, I'm trying to, the system kicks in is 125. The very low value it kicks in to correct is 80. And in my target, I'm trying around 100. So that's the, kind of my system set up. So those are the trigger points where it tries to do something. The other numbers are obviously, those are extremes. You really don't want to, really don't want to be getting that high or that low. Right, right. So you're aiming for 100 because that, that's a little bit different to some of the public knowledge out there. That is correct. It's a realistic aim, should I say. In the UK format, like 4.5, that's kind of more non-diabetic. If 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 we can, if diabetic can sit like that, they're doing a good day. And right now, I can tell you, I'm sitting at 106. Okay. Was sitting quite nicely in my safety lines. Right, right. And you feel pretty comfortable. You feel pretty good at that kind of blood sugar level. Yeah, definitely. And the funny thing with diabetes is, it's generally what not, it's not the number you're sitting at; it's how long you can sit at it. So, for example, if I look at my CGM now, and here's a great example of where CGM is so useful, um, for the last three and a half hours, I've been quite close to around the 100 mark. So I feel quite stable. It's when it starts jumping up and down is when you have the real problem. You're also the danger associated with that. You could get comfortable where your blood sugar is at 200. You know, people do that. They get comfortable with having higher blood sugar levels. Therefore, they really struggle to bring them down. If they go by feeling, is that when they're going by feeling more? That is correct, yeah. And, and all diabetics do go by feeding, unless you start losing that, what's quite a danger. So even though it sounds like for a diabetic, they feel comfortable at aiming for around 100, if they manage their blood sugars badly over a long period of time, they will get used to it being higher than that and therefore feel comfortable at that level. And this is where you get real danger because the diabetic themselves are very reluctant to lower it because they feel so rubbish by doing so. So it's kind of like this, it, the explanation can be very easy, aim for 100. The complications and the reality behind it is in, immensely complicated for the patient to manage. That's really interesting because I can tell you, so when I used to do cheat day dieting, so that would basically be eating clean for six days a week and then one day a week I would eat crap. So I would eat coffees with sugar in them and donuts and w whatever I felt like that day. I would feel amazing that day. I'd be so happy because obviously and my, I'm sure my blood sugar was up at 130 or 140 the whole day. And by the end of the day, I'd get horrible headaches and I would be ADD the whole day as well. That was the negative side effect. It wasn't very good for performance or work. Uh, I found it really hard to actually get anything done. But for hanging out with friends and just having messing around and stuff like that, it would be great or even go to the gym for that matter. That's kind of a good example to reflect on. Yeah, some people get comfortable with people could get comfortable with being kind of high blood sugar high all the time and then feel bad if they're not in that zone. Everyone loves the sugar rush. Um, that's for sure. And I'd say almost let's say a positive side of diabetes, especially type one. Can, it's, it's, type one is known as juvenile diabetes. Can generally in the ground or just before puberty that you catch it. That's quite common, not always. But it does bring you up with a lifestyle of not being so used to sweet substances if you obviously manage it correctly that, you know, that's not always the case so that's always gave me the benefit to notice how high in sugar a lot of the western diet is and how to avoid it because my body's never got used to having that high a lot of sugar 
you know, we always got to try and keep that target area. One that always makes me laugh actually is parents who give their children a bowl, a bowl of like sweets or, and a, and a fruit juice and then wonder why the kids go mental and start running up the walls. Um, it's kind of like you just shoved them full of sugar and they've gone nuts. Is that not just a natural reaction? Yeah, I've seen crazy kids like that. We were a real handful and it's they're you're putting them in that, in that biology zone. It's your own fault for letting them have all that stuff. And then they probably become even more naughty and stuff. So you're like, you sedate them. You say, oh, have some have some more sweets, thinking it's going to help. Calm them down. Yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> a bit of natural sugar and processed sugar. That's like a combination for an explosion, isn't it? Yep, yep. But then again, that's the, the lack of education we generally have in our diets. And as a diabetic, I can notice that a lot more. So, and it's a lot more in my interest to watch those high sugar food because I won't feel great and high afterwards. I'll feel sick and horrible. Right, yeah, because when you come down afterwards. So the upper range there was 200 milligrams per deciliter, which is pretty crazy. I've never seen anything like that with for it. So when you go over that, what happens? Is it just causing damage over the longer term or? Definitely, yeah. So from a long-term perspective, well, anything above, for example, my app, triggers 125 right now that's when he starts saying okay we're starting to go a bit too high let's do something to correct it like the 200 obviously we're entering kind of danger territory there where areas we don't really want to be you just feel sick is the best way to describe it you just feel really sick and the problem is not just that a lot of people don't realize it's not just the physical issues diabetes is also mental so if your blood sugars are running high for example like that it's you've also kind of you have a frustration and stress associated with your body your body has let you down or you've made a mistake. You know, there's only one person to blame in these situations or sometimes you just can't find the cause. You know, before I had a CGM, so another good sell point for a CGM is you have those situations where you feel fine. Everything feels great. You go to check your blood sugars and you find out you're around a 200 mark. And the level of frustration that you get hitting that is immense. So it's all about those sort of situations of how do we, how do we get a wet? I don't want to be told when there's a problem. I want to be told when I'm approaching that there's going to be a potential issue. I need to be more reactive rather than... Well, you need to be more proactive than reactive. Like, oh, I'm already in the 200 zone and I want to get out of there. Exactly. And then, then this escalates. So what happens then is you're stressed. Therefore, insulin has a, is one of the causes for it. you lose insulin sensitivity. You're stressed. Um, it doesn't help. You then start taking injections to try and lower it, but your insulin sensitivity has gone. So therefore, you start overdosing on insulin to try and fix it. Also, there's a delay between the insulin becoming active and taking effect in the body. So you end up in a situation, as with all humans, we want to fix that situation now. So the reality is you overdose on insulin. An hour later, all of a sudden, your blood sugars go crashing down. And that's what makes you feel really bad because you're doing sudden change. And then you have a thing called a rebound effect where you go from being like, say, 200 all the way down to like 20 within the space of 30 minutes. And then you end up doing the opposite, stuffing your face for the food, you're feeling really shit, you feel really rubbish, and then you rebound back up. And this process, as I said, called the rebound um, effect, can take up to two days sometimes of just constantly bouncing up and down because you're struggling to get control over your actual body's blood sugars. I speak on behalf of other diabetics. I know for me, that can easily take two days worth of trying to really gain control. Yes. So really the situation you're in is extreme compared to most of the listeners today. It's fair to say diabetic one is more extreme than diabetes two 
in in terms of trying to manage it and, and control it and the importance of that yes you have to micromanage it more you do and time to you can either take tablets it's more you know it's more lifestyle based so if you adapt your lifestyle and get used to that lifestyle then it's easier with type one it's really kind of it can swing either way very quickly you know right now i've got very good blood sugars in an hour ask me again it could be completely different and that's kind of like the mental stress with diabetes it's not just physical it's very mental yep. it's always constantly on your mind um, and if you're trying to ignore it, you're not going to do yourself any favors in the long run. Yep, yep, great. Okay, let's quickly cover our bases with diabetes. There's two types of diabetes, and one of them, let's talk about your situation first. Some people are born with this, or and some people get it early in life. How do you get diabetes one? There's no real answer for getting type 1 diabetes. Uh, they think it may be inherited, but again, you look at a lot of families, that's not been the case. But then again, if we look at more generations few generations before me, you generally would have died. It's only been like a kind of recent discovery, um, insulin. So it's typical around just before puberty. You generally do find it's a diabetic. The more diabetics you meet, the more you realize you've all been diagnosed at your age. And juvenile diabetes, the word named for that, and is juvenile diabetes. It's quite commonly named that. But we are kind of seeing more and more older diabetics. Now, whether that's a result of lifestyle and therefore more people are getting affected by this at later on in age or whether it's just circumstances, it just so happens to happen, there's no real explanation there. But the percentage of type 1 diabetics to type 2, I wish I could give you a percentage, but it is minute in the minority of diabetics, as in something like 7% of all diabetics or something crazy like that. Right, right, right. So it's a lot rarer than diabetes 2, which has been growing over time. So I don't know if you know this, but as type 1 kind of stayed stable, while diabetes 2, which we say is due to lifestyle factors that, that you get this, has been growing over time? Uh, I'd hate to be quoted on that, but I would generally say yes. As far as I'm aware, type 1 diet, type one diabetes, I would say, has been increasing. I think there is an effect to a certain degree of lifestyle in there for maybe a minute number. But the type 2 is, yeah, is the one that's really on the increase. It's, and it's because our bodies are so good at processing the rubbish we give it. It's only now, later in life, when people have been having a lifestyle of eating bad stuff, does the body finally get to that point where it goes, right, I've had enough, and the pancreas packs in. Anyway, that's my non-medical description. <laughs> so let's just be, be clear on that. But like, for example, I had a good friend of mine, you know, he rings me up one day, and he's always been quite bad with his health, um, always eating pizzas, generally highly processed carbohydrates, doesn't exercise, and says to me, Tim, I've become type two. And he's like, congratulations, you just decided to become a diabetic. I have no choice but to have this condition and suffer with it. You've actually chosen to become it, you know, so you don't have any sympathy. And good for him. He, you know, backed up his ideas, got into exercise, improved his diet, and now he's not type 2 diabetic anymore. So the difference between type 1 and type 2 is almost two different conditions. You know, some people get insulted, actually, by the two conditions having the same name. Because that game is so different. Yeah, yeah, because you just mentioned he reversed that situation. A lot of this is due to the pancreas not working so well. And in, in diabetes 1, is it an autoimmune issue where actually the cells of the pancreas have got destroyed? That is correct. Yeah, I believe that's the case. It's an autoimmune issue. So your body itself destroys the beta cells in your pancreas that actually produce the insulin. I would guess that's the same for all type 1s. I'm actually not sure what the type 2 is because as a lot of people can reverse this if they actively manage their lifestyle, get off. I believe well, type 2 is, is generally the fact that your body is not accepting that insulin. So it could be that the pancreas is producing enough insulin, but your sensitivity, I've read a lot of things, again, will be quoted, but 
it's the sensitivities that instinct that can go so for example i've generally had a healthy diet for most of my life classes many um but only in the last few years did i start looking more at paleo diets and funny enough that's actually more associated with gym than it was with diabetes because that's not really taught right uh, and a yeah. condition but when moving to the paleo diet i found my insulin sensitivity doubled so it wasn't the fact that because i had less carbohydrates if i need less insulin correct that does happen but the insulin I took, I was twice as sensitive to it. Right. So have you reduced, before your diet was what specifically and what, what's the, what the time range we're talking about here? So for the last, for most of your life, your diet has been? So for the majority of my life, unless the last three years, for example, so the majority of my life. So for example, I had bowls of cereals in the morning. Um, I would have a sandwich for lunch. You know, typically in the always bowl potatoes or rice or pasta, like a, a main carbohydrate with dinner. So and also, I had quite significant portions, actually, as well. I used to eat quite a lot. And once I educated myself over the paleo diet and the effect of those processed carbohydrates, one, I discovered I, didn't, I wasn't that hungry all the time. Uh, by cutting back on those processed carbs, I was more satisfied eating lower, lower portions, less portions. And two, the, the, the amount of insulin I required dropped, clearly, so I ate less carbs. But also, the insulin I took, I was twice as sensitive. So my body's reaction to that insulin actually changed. Yeah, you'd have to lower your doses over time and you take them less frequently. Yeah, and again, it wouldn't be quoted, but there's a lot of research right now going on about high the effects of high insulin in the body and what it actually causes. So there's a lot of things going on right now discovering the effects of high insulin. And obviously, all the non-diabetics out there do have unnatural high levels of insulin because of the diets that they're eating. So the effect of this high amount of insulin in the system, you know, it's now starting to be connected to other things. You're saying, I guess, health risks. Okay, correct. You're yeah, saying correct. that high, high insulin is probably not a good thing. Okay, we touched on the long-term risks of this. We've talked more about the acute risks, but the long-term risks for a diabetic, if you're not managing your blood sugar within the zone as much, what, what kind of things? So we just said like insulin, high insulin, which obviously you would be doing if you've got more variation. You're bouncing around, you're going to have to use higher doses of insulin. And if you're not on a paleo diet, as you pointed out, what kind of long-term risks are there for higher blood sugar in general? So if you're constantly around 120 to 140, does that do some kind of damage over the longer term? Does it affect your longevity? It definitely does. Yeah, the overall effect is that it damages the capillaries. And one of the first effects you notice of that is your sight. So you start getting, you'll start to lose your sight, basically. And I've known one or two people who have had high blood sugar levels. And funny enough, actually, these people were both female because high blood sugar levels help you lose weight. And the result of that is they actually end up getting partially sighted. In the last few years, I now started taking photographs of diabetes, type 1 diabetics' eyes, the retina at the back, to kind of see that damage. And even me, as a 20-year diabetic, with reasonable control, not perfect, I've got the signs of a slight bit of damage, but that's expected. So basically, it's one of the first things to hit will be your eyesight. And then, God, um, I don't have a list of complications in front of me, but all sorts of nasty things kind of happen with blood sugar levels that you really do not want to encounter, Not let alone like just a day-to-day effect that it must be having on your system. You also, in the high blood sugar levels, your body will produce ketones, which is kind of like a, it's like a poison. So you literally are poisoning yourself if you have very high blood sugar levels over a long period of time. Right. Just to jump in on that note, because there is a lot of talk on the internet about ketoacidosis, which is extremely high ketones. Do you know what range that is? Again, it will adjust slightly based on the uh, diabetic, but it's generally taught that anything above around the range of 11 um, in UK numbers above that, you should be checking for ketones. Right. So that's millimolar and easy one this time is the US actually uses millimolar as well. Oh, and that's the same as the numbers I've given out in previous podcasts. So we, we all 
get that one. 11. Yeah, so that's pretty damn high. And so is that what happens when you have very low blood sugar? What kind of mechanism is driving high ketones for a diabetic? Uh, high blood sugar levels. Oh, high blood sugar gives you high ketones. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's terribly tall. So if your blood sugars are above 11, then you should be checking for ketones in your urine. Reality is that doesn't really happen very often to be fair. But the advice is if you do discover your ketones in your urine is to immediately go to accident emergency. And it's, it's, it's that critical that your, your body's poisoning itself. What actually is happening there? Is a pH of your blood change? Do you know what the ketoacidosis refers to? I don't know myself. I, I do know that there's a difference between because there's a lot of discussion on the internet. So I just want to make it very clear that when you're like, I love ketones when I'm fasting of seven or eight, it goes about as high as that. I could bump it up a little bit more if I took some exogenous ketones like beta hydroxybutrate or some of the products that are out now. But these are not dangerous conditions. Basically, we don't get the same impact on our blood and the same negative mechanism. So I'm completely safe within those because a lot of people on the internet start talking about this and they say like, are you going to ketosis? And they're like, oh my God, that's really dangerous. That's what happens to diabetes. It's not at all the same thing. And it's really comes down to uh, the difference in these ranges again, right? So seven, eight, minimal is fine. And when you're pushing up there to 11, that's when it becomes problematic. Yeah, so the Diabetes UK website, ketoacidosis, DKA, diabetic. The diabetics is basically a severe lack of insulin and the body cannot use glucose for energy. And the body starts to break down other body tissues as an alternative energy source. So uh, I don't really want to read that. That's right. me out more now. <laughs> right. So it's actually a very different mechanism there. There's something going on where the, your body's breaking you down and it's creating this uh, situation where you can't absorb glucose anymore. So that's not like when we fast or something like that, just to make it clear, or you go on a ketogenic diet, a high fat diet, that's not at all the same mechanism. So you've done a paleo diet for a while, for three years now, did you say? Kind of, yes. I was traveling for a year, um, so that was a struggle to do it then. Um, but I do my best to have kind of a, a low-processed carbohydrate diet. So should we say 60% paleo, 40% normal, or it'd be realistic kind of percentages. Right. Do you have a lot of protein? Because I know paleo these days, is, there's a lot of differences in, in what people are doing. So when you're saying paleo, it's mostly you're eliminating the grains and the... Yeah, the majority I'm eliminating grains and also eliminating kind of white potatoes, switching out of sweet potato, those sort of things. Also, not so much on the dairy front, to be fair, but without eating cereals, the main source of dairy kind of disappears with that as well. So... Again, I don't eat paleo to the point where I walk into a restaurant and freak out, but I eat it to a point where I try and keep my diet as healthy as possible. The difference in cereals, especially, um, you really notice the difference in blood sugars once you get rid of cereals at your diet. So when you're saying cereals, is that oats or what types of cereals? Any breakfast cereal, basically. Anything very breakfast cereal, generally or grain-based. So Weedabix used to be mine, always raved on about how that is kind of a slow release. And the reality is a diabetic, especially with a CGM, you look at CGM, it's not slow release. Great. So let's dive into uh, continuous glucose monitoring. And what motivated you start that? Because I assume at one point you were using pinprick devices. And when did you make the switch? So, yeah, so as we were saying earlier, so the, I acquired an insulin pump before I went traveling. And one, because I wanted that tech. And two, because it meant I only had to travel one type of insulin, so it made my life easier. With an insulin pump, there's a lot of functionality there. So... You can really tailor the background basal release of insulin over 24 hours. But how can you guess how much insulin you need over that period if you don't have a way to see what your blood sugars are over a period like that? So the kind of NHS taught way, I believe, is kind of like 
you have these days where you try your best to be as normal as possible or miss breakfast and see what your kind of blood sugars had in move. It's really difficult to try and get a life that boring. Um, I actually do those tests and they suggest taking a blood sugar every two hours. But again, a lot can happen in two hours. I can go higher to low within minutes, let alone two hours. So to have a real-time reading of your blood sugars to help you calibrate the insulin pump, well, I, I would dare say it's almost impossible without the CGM. And that's what drove me to get the CGM device. Yeah, so a normal diabetic would like doing this every two hours, so say eight times a day or, or something like that. And obviously it's not getting as fine a picture. So you mentioned a lifestyle impact there. You said you kind of have to have a boring lifestyle. You're not able to do things because you're not aware of where your blood sugar is going to be. Well, you have to discover what your background insulin has to be. You have to obviously not be disturbing your body in any manner. So one, not consuming food. Two, not being too active. Three, not being very stressed. And then you try and have those periods of time, generally over, let's say, a morning, lunch and evening and overnight, have those periods of time where you can see what is your body doing? Is your blood sugar slowly creeping up? Are they slowly creeping down? It gives you an indication of how much insulin do you need per hour over that period. Now, the reality of life, when do you get those quiet periods? I've been trying to do that calibration for the last probably four years, and I've not been able to get those quiet periods in my life. So to do it via that mechanism of checking every few hours over those quiet periods, it's, it's really, really difficult. So a CGM, it can give you that more real-time information. So yes, it's still beneficial to fast. Yes, it's still beneficial to have those quiet days. But at least I know what's happening in an every five-minute interval. So in those two hours, if I'm finger-pricking, I have no idea if I suddenly crashed and rebounded. I don't know. You know I've got two data points. I have no idea what's happening. Also, if I do that test every few hours and I'm a five, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm going up? Does it mean I'm going down? It's a point in time value. It's not really an indication of what the trend is. You know, where's your body kind of directing itself? You mentioned there's a number of things that are, you're kind of looking at there, which I guess is, are things that you've learned. You said stress, activity and food are the, are the main inputs what you're thinking about when you're thinking whether it's going up and down. Are these the main inputs? What have you kind of discovered from using a CGM over time? What, what things maybe you're surprised about? What kind of things is your blood sugar going up and down with? That you've learned over time it's one obviously this allowed me to understand what's happening and that in itself even if there's a problem is incredibly valuable it's allowed me to notice when issues are potentially going to happen so the general cgm if you start going up high quickly or if you hit a threshold okay while you still have hit that threshold at least the system can alarm you so you can you can deal with the issue so it's, it's kind of in some ways it's empowering the patient as we described earlier, having a day where I feel fine, check my blood sugars and suddenly discover I'm, I'm 15 or 200 in, in the middle. I want a system that can at least assist me, you know, and take away some of that mental stress of constantly having to guess what's actually happening. Right. And that decision making, is it like taking away some of that having to think about it so that you can get on with other stuff in your life? Well, not from a CGM perspective. In the artificial pancreas, yes. And we can come to that more in a second. But from a, from a CGM, what a CGM doing is giving me more information. So again, it's like the attitude with a pump. Great, you have a pump, your diabetes is cured. No, I have a pump, my diabetes is now that much more complicated, but I'm now more empowered to deal with it. Same with a CGM. It doesn't cure my diabetes, it gives me more information. Um, what is more stressful, and some people it's too stressful, they get rid of the CGM. So it doesn't help me manage my diabetes, it gives me the information to help me kind of make better judgment calls. So we've spoken about the insulin pump, is that something you attach on you 
and it automatically injects you versus having to actually do injections. You just kind of pump it and it injects you. How does that work? What's the difference there? So, so when we described earlier, two types of insulin, one that happens over a long period, 24 hours, an instant acting one when you eat. So what an insulin pump does, it has one type of insulin inside it. That's the rapid acted insulin. It has a profile on the pump. So it can deliver very minute levels of insulin over the course of the day. And that level of insulin, I can tailor the pump how much it gives me over that period. So, for example, a lot of diabetics have a thing called a dawn phenomenon, what basically means in the morning to have very high blood sugar levels. Unless somehow you can wake yourself up before that happens and inject yourself, you can't manage it. But with an insulin pump, you can at least tailor your profile to say, deliver more insulin in this morning period to accommodate for the fact I know I'm going to have naturally high blood sugar levels. So that's kind of one of the real powerful things with the insulin pump. Second, um, obviously, as we said as well, it gives you gives bonuses, so shots of insulin at any point in time. Just the same as taking an injection, just take a lump of insulin with the food you're eating. But that in itself doesn't sound like much. But let's say, for example, if you go for a barbecue, what happens in a barbecue? You normally eat over a period of two, three hours. As a diabetic, I'd have to be injecting myself constantly over that period. With the insulin pump, I can control it through the pump or the remote I have for it and basically say, just give me a injection of insulin now, another injection later. So I can kind of give myself the insulin as and when required it. And my lifestyle doesn't have to be so controlled. I can be a bit more relaxed. A bit more flexible. Exactly. Just going to the, first of all, in, this is, sounds like it's an implant. The insulin pump is an implant. Yeah, no, you're correct. So the insulin pump is like a small pager device that has all the insulin. It has a tube that comes out of that. Um, and that goes to a cannula, like a little device that kind of just sits in my stomach. It sounds worse than it, than it actually is. <laughs> that did sound quite bad the way um, you said it. But the cannula is kind of like a little plastic tube that goes in your stomach. Um, and you fire that in by a little device that just kind of smacks the skin and pots it in for me. And that stays on for about three days until I rotate to another site. Okay, so you actually push it in yourself into a different area? So it doesn't go in very deep? Yeah, correct. So I rotate the area myself. So I have a, a special device. Most insulin pumps will have this. It's like an inserted device. What typically happens, it kind of fires it in. And the reason for that is the actual impact of it hitting your skin is kind of more distracting than the effect of the needle going inside you. Right, right. But once you take the needle out, the only thing that's left is a hollow tube. That's, I think the ones I use are about eight millimeter long that go into the skin. And then you can remove those tubes afterwards when you go to a new site? Literally just peel it off. It's like one of those things you... um. First few weeks, you freak out and you... As with everything. Almost go mad and yeah. then suddenly you get used to it. Yep, yep. That's uh, same with most stuff. Okay, cool. So in terms of changes you've actually made, how long have you been using a continuous glucose monitor now? Permanently, actually, only since kind of for the last six months, really. So the way I sourced my original CGM, I bought it secondhand off eBay in the US because I used one on the NHS gate. They lent me one for a week. They got all my data I went and showed it to them and they said, oh, I can't really make much information from this. We need you to use it for longer. So I was like, great, let me have it for longer. No, we can't afford it. So why did they give it? I guess it's just politics or something. Why give it to you for a week if they can't use it? It's generally down to costs. So uh, diabetics on insulin pumps, I actually do have these numbers. For March 2013, as a survey, and I believe it's about 6% of type 1 diabetics have pumps. Getting an insulin pump is very difficult. So you really have to hit a, a, a decent criteria. And even if you hit that criteria and the nice guidelines are in your favor, if they don't have funding, you don't get one. So to get an insulin pump itself is a challenge. The number of patients on CGMs, again, the, the criteria for that is even tighter. And it's so tight, I actually don't know anyone who's on an NHS-funded CGM. Okay, so it's very rare to be on a CGM. Very, very rare to be on one funded by the NHS. So the majority of people are self-funded in the UK, that is. Um, it's different in the US with health insurance. 
So with the frustration of me only having a CGM for one week and it being useless, in the US, a new model came out and everyone started trying to flog their old models on eBay. eBay couldn't kind of take listings down quickly enough because they weren't allowed to sell medical devices. So I managed to nab one of these uh, CGM devices called a Dexcom 7 Plus. A few weeks later, I was in the post and then I kind of turned up in front of me this device with these two horrible looking needles that looked like something out of Hellraiser. <laughs> out of date, but still sterile. I had to stick them in my stomach. So the whole process to do that, like I say, was traumatic beyond belief, having to stick something inside you that you have no kind of real medical guidance on. But that just goes to show the power, what the power of the data, that, you know, how useful this is for me. I'm, I'm willing to take that risk. So to cover the horror story part, um, if we think about the current technology that's available in the market, right, Dexcom and others, currently, is it the same situation where you have something quite horrific you have to plug into you? Or is it a little bit getting more friendly than that? Now I'm using the Dexcom G4 system. The process to stick the sensor in you is the same. It looks obviously more scary than it is. The process of actually sticking it in you is more scary than it generally is. But I'm guessing the process is just not natural. Uh, you don't really want to be sticking needles at me. And also the process, you have to push the plunger down. So you feel the sensation of it hitting your skin and it going inside you. So it's all kind of, it's one of those things you gear yourself up for it. You do it. You're like, I don't understand what the fuss was. Oh, okay. Right. It's more psychological. It definitely is. Uh, it's definitely psychological for sure. How deep does it go? Oh, good question. I'd say about, it goes in at an angle, unlike the insulin pump uh, cannula. Um, it's a bit of metal that's left in there, and it goes in about a centimetre and a half, I'd say, I think. Okay, at an angle, so it's not going all... It's, that's true, but the problem I have is that I don't have enough fat on my body. I'm quite lean, what's annoying. So I kind of notice it a bit more, and sometimes it comes a bit too close to my muscle fibres. The system's generally designed to go into your stomach, where it's more fatty, and the reality is you move your stomach a lot, and it therefore lasts a less amount of time, so I actually stick it in my upper arm. Okay. All right, so you have a choice where you it's not specifically built and will only work on one part of the body. You can plug it on your upper arm or somewhere and it'll... It's medically signed off to be in your stomach. For children, I believe it can go on a bum cheek, but, but it does definitely work elsewhere, yes. All right, all right, excellent. All right, we're good, we'll pass our story. Are there other makers? How many of these are on the market right now? And what's the cost of this? How much did you buy it for and how much would you buy these things for brand new? So the main two players are Medtronic and Dexcom, definitely the UK market. Um, there is another company who produces something similar called the Freestyle System, I think. Oh, I can't remember the court name of it now, but it's a very popular right now in the diabetes circle. But it actually works by um, NFC, near field uh, communication. So it's not a real-time, doesn't give real-time readings, but you can tap it for readings. And that's an implant as well. Yeah, I was actually looking at that one recently. I, it seemed like there was a lot of complaints. And it, this is just from my reading around it. There was a lot of complaints about it. And I was wondering if they put it off the market because I was looking at buying one and it seemed like it wasn't available currently. So I was wondering if they were figuring a, looking at it because it seemed like a lot of people were having problems with it getting broken, basically, and having to return it. Well, I, I have a lot of suspicions of that system because it doesn't require calibrating as well. I don't quite understand how you do not have to calibrate something to a patient. I don't get that. Um, but also that system... It only works by being tapped. It's not in real time. So I ask, I have a lot of questions in my head. Why? Do they know something's not as accurate? Or I don't know. Right. So when you say it's not in real time, you have to tap it every time you want to take a reading. Correct. Yes. Like an Oyster card, you're tapping on the tube. Like you have to tap that with the reader and it'll give you a reading. So it's not as if like the Dexcom and Medtronic devices, I have like a pager in my bag and every five minutes it gets a reading. This, yeah, the Libra system, you have to tap it. Now, I did speak to someone the other day actually and they did tell me they have done a recall 
because there's been some issues. So I'd say your thoughts are correct there. So I use the Dexcom G4 system. It's, shall I dare say, renowned as being one of the best on the market. The downside, as with all these things, is obviously the costs. And a CGM is damn expensive. I have numbers on my blog, but the cost of a G4 at the time, I did the blog post, for the first year is just under £5,000. And then after that, it's just under £4,000. This is a really expensive system to maintain. And so are there consumables? What's the base cost versus? Yeah, so there definitely is consumables. That's how these things work. So you have the sensor that actually goes in your arm. That's in theory is only supposed to last a week. And then you rip it off and put another one. And that sensor itself is about £60. You then have a transmitter. was a plastic thing that clicks on, clips on top of the sensor. And that broadcasts the actual reading every five minutes. And that's a consumable that lasts approximately six months, maybe up to a year, if you're lucky. And then finally, you actually have the receiver itself. It looks like a, like a mini smartphone that actually gets the readings. So when I um, came back from traveling, I wanted to start using my old 7 Plus CGM. And I discovered that the transmitter, the actual that little device that sits on top, the batteries had died. And when I researched the cost, it was, again, I can't give exact numbers here, but it was something stupid. It was something like 600, 500 pounds for this transmitter, where the cost of the device, the cost of the batteries inside are no more than a couple of pounds. So personally, I felt quite insulted by that. You know, I wanted to use a medical device to help me use my readings, and clearly the markup on this was ridiculous. So the first thing I did was research the process to actually how to access those batteries and found other people have done similar and managed to cut the transmitter open by slicing the top off and popping the batteries out myself. So approximately five pounds later, I had a device that would have cost me around about 600. So the potential for savings were massive. So this year, when I wanted to move on to the G4 system, I can't afford five grand for the first year. I do not have this cash knocking around. But the actual community of diabetics, a lot of happened since I've been traveling in 2014. They all started to develop a lot of different ideas of how to access their data. And as an offshoot for this, a guy called Stephen Black developed a device called Xstrip was like the little tic-tac box. Um, and in it, it basically has two little circuit boards. One is a RF like radio device that picks up the RF frequency from the transmitter. And then the second circuit board is a Bluetooth device that then relays it to your mobile. So you can actually get rid of the receiver for the system by using this device in your mobile phone. So yeah, you're using your mobile phone in right this device and the mobile phone. So yes, yeah, so you're using this X-Trip device, also look, that little tic-tac box and the X-Trip mobile app. So by using those, I don't need to get the receiver, when itself I think is about £800 a grand, something like that. So that was one cost. Down. And so the final tackle was the new G4 transmitter. You know, there's people everywhere binning these every other day, but they're perfectly good devices as the batteries need to change. So a few kind people donated their transmitters to me, and I managed to, again, following some other people's uh, guidance, we managed to hack open it and then replace the batteries. So for really low cost, I managed to get a G4 system where the impact was only me buying the sensors. So my consumables have gone down to just the sensors I wear. And if you're tactical with the sensors, you can actually get up to three weeks to four weeks out of them, and not just one week. Yeah, and that's because one part of that was you were lucky that there was a lot of people selling these on eBay at the time, the original Dexcom. Yeah, the original one I got from eBay, that was end of life. So I was lucky to get that. And I, I paid about four or five hundred pounds for that. And then move on to the G4 system because I had to move to that system because the old one was being retired. I managed to get it working by a donated transmitter that replaced the battery. 
building my own receiver, the extra stuff, and then the sensors, um, still buying the retail sensors, but making them last up to four weeks rather than one week. Wow, that's a hell of a cost reduction there. Massive. So as we said earlier, so the cost of the first year is roughly 5000 I brought that down to just over 1000 in the first year. So it's saving of almost 3.5K. So that's massive. And so other people could repeat this? Yes, definitely. And other people are doing similar. So I wasn't the first one to discover any of this, really. I was the first to kind of, well, one of the first, shall we say, to actually go into the CGM world with the attitude, I do not want to buy the manufacturer system. You know, I need to get this to a point where it's affordable. Or what's the point? I'm not going to be able to use it. Right. Is this called the DIY community? Yeah. In a very small nutshell, and I'm not going to do it justice, but the community we're not waiting is a collection of basically diabetics or diabetic assistants, family members or hackers who are helping make better use of the technology. Um, And there's two core projects that have come out of that. And they all evolve around just individuals who wanted to better access their data and therefore things came out of that. One of them is called Night Scout. And that basically was originated from some parents who wanted to monitor their children remotely. So for example, let's say you've got your child on the Dexcom, you know, they carry this little device in their bag. They wish to stay around a friend's house for the first time. As a parent, you're freaking out. You've constantly monitored this child from a young age. You've got no way of knowing how they are. So what they, did, they found was a process to link the Dexcom receiver, the little pager device, to a mobile phone, download readings every few minutes. And then once the patient had control of those readings on their phone, they do what they want with them. So what they did is develop a system called Night Scout that basically published it to a web page. So this then blossomed in the community with a lot of people kind of contributing towards it and benefiting. Then led on to Stephen Black, who developed the X-Drip app, the little tic-tac box I said that picks up a signal and pops on your mobile phone. So this was a full wireless solution. And what that allowed was, one, to not have things cabled together. That's just unreliable. But it allowed you to take control of the data on your mobile phone. And then again, what do you want to do with that? Some people then published it to their website. Other, uh, Stephen then developed an application that actually sends it to his smartwatch. So right now, I'm sitting here with a smartwatch on, a Sony smartwatch that costs about £80. And I have my real-time blood sugars on there. So rather than having a device in my bag or my back pocket... That's a pain in the ass to get out and check something that I should be checking pretty much every 10, 15 minutes, see what's going on. I now have it on my, on my wrist. Now, the quality of life improvement by just taking the data I already produce and putting it somewhere more accessible for me is massive. I can't, can't even begin to describe the quality of life you get from that. Just having better access to your data. And that's what the community kind of discovered was if they can free that CGM data then the patients can be creative in how they wish to visualize and view it. Yeah. And, and it really has a big impact in their flexibility and just their quality of life. So you mentioned that these things have to be calibrated. I understand that they're not as accurate as a pinprick device. If you take the standard pinprick and, and, and the strip that you use to assess your blood sugar, are these not as accurate or they can be as accurate? Like what, what are you dealing with there? The official terms is they're not. They definitely can be if calibrated correctly. And what I mean by calibration is every 12 hours, you do have to prick your finger and draw blood and basically tell the CGM system what the reading is. And then it understands approximately, you know, where, how, whereabouts the readings it's receiving was, I believe that it's like a you know, intravenous fluids. It reads it from there. Yeah. Um, rather than directly blood, yeah. Rather than direct blood, correct. Um, 
So it calibrates it to that. What have you found when you were doing that? Are you, are you pricking yourself once per day or twice, morning and evening? So generally, I, I'm pricking myself. If the system's functioning, I'm comfortable with it, then it will be once every 12 hours. Sometimes it's up to three or four times every 12 hours because it's very easy to miscalibrate. So, for example, if my blood sugars are suddenly moving very quickly and I calibrate then, then the system becomes quite unreliable. Uh, it still it still has a decent trend. I can still see if I'm going up and down, but the reading it's given me will be off uh, by a fair amount. Well, how much would that be? Is that like it really could be anything? So, in a good day, we say it would be eight out by one unit, and this is uh, the UK measurements I'm doing here by one unit roughly. And if it's within one unit, that's generally classed as pretty damn good. Um, I'll be quite happy, but it can be up to four if it's been miscalibrated. So we're talking about eight milligrams per deciliter or something like that could be out. That's I'm just yeah, your one unit. So for a lot of people, that freaks them out. But the power of the CGM is not necessarily giving the most accurate reading. It's more the power of seeing the trend. So I know if I'm going up or down or you know something is changing and it allows... Or if you're going up really quickly. Exactly, yeah. So don't get me wrong, having a well-calibrated device is amazing. But having one that's not as good calibrated, there's still a lot of value in the system, even though the numbers are slightly out. Now, I know with a G4 system... Um, I believe I'm correct in saying that even if the system tells you something and you wish to act on it, the strict medical guidance is you still have to prick your finger because the system is not really designed to be a complete replacement. I get you. So how do you use it, you personally? Do you make changes based on, on the trends you're seeing? Well, you, have, you have to be careful as well because there's such a thing as over-calibrating. So <laughs> it's like, as I said, with all these things, there's no, there's no right or wrong way. It really is kind of a fine line to balance. So I... Personally, before the artificial pancreas stuff that I've worked on, I used the CGM more as an information gathering. So is my blood sugars good when I think they are? You know, are they going down or up quickly? Do I need to, you know, is there something not right here? You know, is my carbohydrate to insulin ratio for my meal correct? So, you know, am I spiking too much uh, after a meal? So the CGM is just like this constant feed of data. And the limitation here is not the system. The system's really good. It's the patient. Because I'm, I'm just human. I, I can't process that much data and understand what's going on and benefit from it and then configure my insulin pump to react if need be to changes. I've now gone from a point where I've had very little data and a lot of guessing to now where I'm overloaded with data. I'm overloaded with GM readings. I'm overloaded with an insulin pump that has more features than I can possibly use. I'm overloaded by logging all my carbohydrates, my boluses, my exercise. You know, I'm constantly producing all this data. But as an individual mostly wasted i think it's always important to come back what do you actually look at now if you, if you kind of take a step back what are the things you actually do look at now in terms of when you're looking at it is it you're just looking for when it starts to rise quickly or drop quickly are those the main things that you're taking into account if you pull out like a week of data what are the things that you notice and you think are interesting so to be honest the only stuff i generally use it for is real-time information so what am i like now where am i going am i heading up or down you have I've recently eaten and I've clearly misjudged, so I need to take more insulin. So that it's all real time. I benefit. Now, this is again, we can go on a whole long conversation again here on historical data. But typically, we're lazy. I'm lazy. I can't be bothered to look at my historical data. I struggle dealing with the real time stuff, let alone historical. But this is again, this is not an issue with myself. It's an issue with the lack of usability of the technology around me. There should be ways to analyze that data for me and give me suggestions. And there is things in the community being worked on to benefit from that. Right. So I guess that would be like looking at your diet and stuff. So I know that we, we spoke before about some things that you've noticed over time with respect to time to glucose change. 
and, and things like that. We were speaking. So one of the, the things we discussed last time was that nuts. One of the things you learn is when you're eating nuts. Yeah, no, exactly. So that's an interesting one. This is another great example, actually, of the benefits of CGM. For a few weeks, I was noticing I was having very high blood sugar levels overnight. I couldn't quite understand why. And over time, I slowly realized I was consuming nuts before going to bed on those days. And nuts are high in protein. They have a very slow release. They're generally quite good. But they, for me anyway, apparently cause a spike in my blood sugars. How long did that take? Was it over a few hours? or? I think it was about two hours, actually, or maybe less, maybe about an hour and a half. But it was very noticeable. And once you found the pattern, it was easy to produce and easy to fix because I give myself an insulin. But with my pump, let that insulin be delivered over an extended amount of time. So it was ready to kind of cope with that spike later. And again, that's another benefit of a CGM, the fact that you can make, you can, these things can be, you're now aware of them. If not, I've just been asleep. And maybe those blood sugars were fixed themselves. Maybe they've rebounded and I've been woken up with a severe low. You know, just don't know. But now I have access to that information to see what's going on. Yeah. And you can decide not to eat nuts before you go to bed as well. Oh, yeah. That, that's been a challenge, that one. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's just a bit of a thing you like to do. Cool. Are there other types of proteins or other things you've discovered which you've actually changed or you've had to think about managing more that you've learned from the CGM? Uh, definitely cutting out breakfast, uh, cereals, sorry for breakfast. That's definitely quite an easy one. Noticing a spike with coffee. I do like to drink coffee a day. That's interesting. Could that just be black coffee or is it? I generally have mine quite milky because I'm quite a wuss. So obviously it's kind of carbs based as well as caffeine. The best way I can describe it is like wearing glasses for the first time. So you're partially silent. You know the world's around you. You know things are going on. You can't quite see. You put glasses on, suddenly it's all clear. Now the negative side of that is you're suddenly overwhelmed by everything. So there is a lot more stuff this CGM can help me with that I can't possibly process. And that kind of comes on to the other, the artificial pancreas stuff that I've been working on that actually uses this data to help kind of uh, manage my medication. So earlier we spoke about Night Scout, and that's one project in the community. There's another one called Open APS, what's an artificial, uh, open artificial pancreas system. Again, a bit of a story behind that. A couple met Deanna and... Um, Oh dear, mine's gone blank. I apologize. I should know this. I was only talking to him last night. <laughs> no, no worry. We'll look this up afterwards and everything will go in the show notes. Uh, so for everyone at home, like the post Tim mentioned on his website and all the links to that kind of stuff and everything else will be at forquantifiedbody.net forward slash CGM. And you'll have the links to anything we mention. We'll look them up afterwards if we need to. Thank you. Yeah, I can definitely say now I'm not doing a community justice or I'll be talking here for a lot more than an hour. So anyway, so this, this couple kind of built a system. They captured CGM data. They used it to give themselves a lot of alarms because the alarms weren't loud enough. So they, 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 at times she would sleep for the night. Deanna would sleep for the night and not hear alarm. And then they started capturing more data and they suddenly realized, actually, with all this data, we can do like a really simple algorithm. Or like in extremely simple terms, basically says, I can see my blood sugars are starting to go up, CGM data. I know how much insulin I've given myself, you know, by capturing treatments as you do with a diabetic. Therefore, I clearly don't have enough insulin in my system. Therefore, let's increase the background insulin on the pump. So that system basically, is, it's called a, a closed loop system. So it's, it, it kind of takes the readings in real time. It processes the information it already knows about the patient, the stuff I have to log as a diabetic. And then it does slight adjustments to my insulin pump. The algorithm is very simple. That's an extremely simple description of it I've just given you. But when I started working with the X-Strip stuff and getting the CGM on my phone, um, I suddenly realized how now I own this data. What do I do want to do with it? Well, I want to integrate this open APS code and port it onto a mobile phone. And right now it just runs on Raspberry Pis. So it's a bit of a, a cabled system where it's all cabled together. 
So what I've done is basically got building a, a mobile app that now takes my carbohydrate consumption. I have to log anyway. It takes my boluses instant I take, so that's all been logged. It has a, a wizard in there that helps me calculate how much insulin I need based on my sensitivity, you know, what I've calibrated for it. So the app still requires a lot of calibration. The app knows how my insulin pump's configured. So what it can do, it can see the real-time readings of blood sugars and go, hang on, I know how much t- I know what Tim's consumed. I know how much insulin his pump's delivering. I can see his blood sugars are going high, for example. Let's give himself a little bit more insulin to prevent that. And that's a closed-loop system. So now I'm not just sitting there producing data that I struggle to analyze. I'm now kind of putting that data to work. My insulin pump itself is Bluetooth. So technically, there's no reason why my mobile phone and my insulin pump cannot talk to each other. It's just the manufacturers and regulation bodies that don't want that to happen. Technically, it can. So right now, I have a system called an open loop. So what happens every 15 minutes, it takes all this information. If it thinks I should adjust my insulin pump, on my Android Wear watch, it pops up with a message and says, Tim, make this adjustment to your pump based on the prediction I've given. Giving you information for you to decide. So open loop is it notifies me to action it. So I'm being notified on my phone. I acknowledge it and then I manually adjust my pump. That's open loop. That's still great because it takes a lot of your decision making out of it. It's surprisingly actually quite powerful. And again, it's, like I said, it's that mental stress. Now I'm not constantly looking at my CGM and panicking of what to do to prevent something. And again, I'm human. I'm going to overreact. I I constantly do things wrong. I don't know how well educated I am. Now the system suggests to me. So I just wait for the system to give me a suggestion and I act on that. I'm now working with someone to help me hack the Bluetooth interface on the pump. Once that's done, I'll have a thing called a closed loop system. So not only will it do those calculations, now every five minutes, because that's how frequent the data can be, it will action it every five minutes. And all it's doing is very slight adjustments every five minutes. It's not kind of giving me a load of medication at once or removing medication because with the insulin pump, I could turn it off potentially to naturally let my blood sugars come higher. I'm just doing very tiny adjustments every five minutes. Right. And that way you reduce a lot of the risk as well because you're making such minor adjustments. Even if it's wrong, it's not going to be really out of line. Absolutely correct. Yeah, it's better than your judgment. Do you? I mean, will you feel more confident about this? or as confident as your own judgment? Well, I've already discovered that I have less rebounds because if I don't fight with a system and I am, I let it, one, it kind of triggers itself before I realize a problem because it's obviously checking my data constantly. So it, I get an early kind of opportunity now to kind of give myself more insulin or less insulin, depending on where I'm going. Also, the system will say, well, hang on, I've delivered quite a lot of insulin for you now. I'm actually going to stop. And if I acknowledge that and accept it, I have less likely to overdose um, myself. So I find that I still go high and low. This will never go away. That's that's a fact of life with diabetes. But I find that the system can better manage and make decisions rather than me being emotional and overreact. And even though, as I said, the system's not completely automated, even now if my sensor dies on me and I I have a gap without, I'm a bit lost. I'm like, I've got used to this system taking this worry away from me. Now, the interesting thing is there's 16 people, I believe, to date who are actually using this system fully closed. They're using slightly different equipment to me. So they, they have a slightly more technical setup, shall we say, and they, it's on a Raspberry Pi. It's using some older hardware. My device is more of a plug-and-play kind of install, and it works with a lot of calibration, that is. So they're doing closed already? They're doing closed, yes. So, the, so they're not, it's hands-off completely. Correct. They're not, they, really, they, they can monitor it, they can check it, but it's just actually pumping itself. It's just taking care correct. of it. Great. So they're walking around with like a little bum bag on, basically, with all the, 
the, the Raspberry Pi and all the bits in there. So it's a real kind of, it's not an elegant solution, so we say, but it's very usable. And there's even, even parents using this on their children. So this is kind of, you can see the power behind such a thing. You know, people are very um, enthusiastic. Um, the interesting risks my device brings is mine's it's like an Android app. So once you install the app and set all the settings, what well, again, most of the settings as a diabetic, you should know because it's all typical stuff you have to understand. And if you had the right equipment, the insulin pump and the CGM data, it's a very easy system to set up. And that introduces a lot of potential dangers as well. Because now you're not forcing the system to be only, you have to be highly technical to implement it. I'm kind of bringing that barrier down. And what does that mean? It's quite a, it can potentially be a high risk situation. So I've got to be very aware of what code I release and who accesses it and what, how we manage that barrier. You know, typical situation, you get a parent whose child's diagnosed. That's, oh no, this is terrible. Oh look, there's an app out there that will fix it. And with pure ignorance, just install it thinking it will cure the diabetes. Again, my app makes my life easier, but it does make it that much more complicated still because I have to make sure the app's correctly configured. Yeah, because well, you're going to rely on the technology. So if the technology has a bug in it, if the app has a bug in it, and maybe it just turns up in a specific situation, so once every seven days or it doesn't get spotted, then there's that kind of risk there for someone who's, like you say, is not technically savvy, might not see it, or it just kind of goes unseen. Does this tie in with, I know you have the hashtag, we are not waiting? Yeah, and that is the community. So the community are utilizing that hashtag, we are not waiting. And well, the name explains itself. It's basically kind of the frustration of diabetics in the lack of access to their data, the lack of compatibility between devices, the lack of progress. And one of the real frustrating things of diabetic is that you've constantly got so-called experts who are not diabetics making decisions for you on what equipment you get, on how you should look after yourself. And unless you live with a condition, whether you're a good or bad expert, you're still the expert. So the community is kind of taking it upon themselves to try and kind of produce these better solutions to improve the quality of life for people. Again, there's loads more information on that on my blog and kind of where that hashtag came from and the rally cry kind of between people saying we've had enough. Technology's already here. I'm already producing the data. If I can sit on my sofa and control my light from my phone, why the hell can it not talk to my insulin pump? You know, this is not a technology problem. Yes, it's really cool. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's more of a regulation and uh, medical bringing stuff, things that are medical to market and managing that risk, right? That's kind of the thing it seems that's really holding things back. So just for people at home, so this has also been called a, a bionic pancreas as well as an artificial pancreas. And it's the, the goal is really it's just replacing that body part, which isn't working at well in diabetics, right? The insulin pump and just completely replacing it. That is correct. In simple terms, yes. So as with all these things, the configuration and manage it is a bit more complicated. But all it's doing is monitoring that data and helping me make decisions. And that's helping me in real time. There's still a lot of benefit to data mining that data I capture and giving adjustments to my profile and how I treat myself. So there's that, that whole world kind of is there to be discovered still. And there's an open source company called Tidepool who are doing kind of great research in that area and publishing a platform where it can number crunch. But the artificial pancreas stuff is all about giving me something that benefits me right now. So for example, I can look at my artificial pancreas app. I can see, even though I'm having a late lunch today, that my blood sugars haven't started dropping. And if it did start dropping, it will kind of tell me and therefore allow me the opportunity to adjust my pump so they don't go to my age. Blood sugars don't go too low. So this is pretty cool stuff because it's one of the first projects where it's actually replacing a body part with this closed loop system, as you call it, so it can just start operating kind of like if you take a, something out of the Terminator and put it in your body, to use a science fiction analogy. 
I think it's also interesting, like a lot of people have probably seen the press around Tyrannos or Theranos as the big um, blood testing company in the US recently. That company was actually based on a patent for something similar to what you're talking about, but for drugs in terms of it would automatically pump drugs in for patients of all different types based on readings taken from something like a continuous monitor of their blood. And so you could see many, many applications if you guys are leading the charge because diabetes is common and it's a very specific blood monitoring and insulin pumping situation. But you could see how this could eventually apply to many different areas, whether it be oxidative stress and like pumping glutathione into your body or other adjustments to kind of optimize uh, your biology. So, you know, I think it's re really, really interesting. Just wanted to make sure we do cover the legal regulatory situation a bit better. So currently the FDA and all of this are saying you're not allowed to do this. So of course, you're not allowed to sell these devices. Is it fine for you to do this at home? Obviously, there's the risks everyone should be aware of, because if you're not technically savvy, this is DIY project at the moment. It's not like it's really 100% signed off and stuff, and it hasn't gone through, uh, what would you say, compliance testing and, and trials to make sure it's 100% safe. So how would you put it, the, the, kind of, the kind of situation for people at home, if they're interested in learning more about this and what they should be aware of in terms of the risks and the legal situation? So one thing to really highlight regarding that is all the devices you can get right now. So the real risk here is delivery medication. That's the real risk. If I misconfigure my insulin pump, I could still kill myself. The, the risk always exists. There's no solution on the market that removes complete risk. You know, so you always got to be aware, whatever you're utilizing, it has to be utilized correctly or there's potential for serious harm. And there's already commercial products out there that have bugs and have issues with them that have come up. So it comes down to, so while the open source stuff is obviously not therefore gone through the same regulations, it doesn't mean the stuff that has gone through regulations is therefore perfect. You know, you always have to be aware. Now, clearly with a community producing this open source, the main reason for that is to try and get it to, to try and get it out there sooner. If I try to commercialize a product out of this, I'm looking at X number of years in research and development. And rightly so. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I want a better quality of life and I kind of want it now. And I have the data and the systems in front of me. So it's up to me if I wish to take code that's available out there, that's been published, and I wish to utilize it myself in something that gives me a better quality of life, you know, that's my decision. And that's what I want to do. And it works for me. Now, that's the question everyone else needs to ask. You know, there's a lot of code out there. There's a lot of information. Whether it works for you, whether you feel comfortable and understand it, this is a decision and a kind of a path you need to follow yourselves. It's not that we all hate the regulatory bodies or the actual manufacturers themselves. You know, they have a difficult job. But the reality is the cost of managing long-term conditions is not going down. The NHS already acknowledges that. There's a wealth of individuals out there with a lot of knowledge and now utilizing that in a technical way. How do we embrace that community and somehow introduce it into our kind of care pathways? No one knows. We're at the point now where the regulatory processes, they're designed for a, year, a world 100 years ago. Now, they weren't designed for a world where in, one, in, in two months I can develop an artificial pancreas algorithm in my app or on my mobile. You know, that, that never was possible. It now is. So what do we do? Do we just ignore it and try and push it to one side? Or do we have to learn and try and discover how we cope with that? So I don't have answers for that, and no one does. And that's one, one of the things that makes it so exciting and interesting. You know, how do we utilize this? And a lot of talks I give, it's kind of like, this is happening. It's going to continue to happen. So no one knows the answer, but let's all start talking now.
and how we manage this. How do we control the risks? And there always will be risks. So with people out there who are interested, there's a lot of information out there. If you've got the enthusiasm, you'll find it. My blog has a lot of details on, on where to go to get more data. Be aware of what you're trying to do. It's very easy to make a mistake. And, and anything we do, if you're messing around with your health, the risks can be quite severe. Great, great. Thank you. That's great. I, mean, I think also just like the fact that a movement exists, it's going to force companies to kind of step up and move along, you know, otherwise they kind of get left behind. So whatever happens in that situation, you're providing this positive pressure on innovation. Yeah, definitely. There's already belief that has taken effect, especially with Dexcom and they released some, some equipment recently and it's believed it fast tracked through the FDA process more because of the community kind of advancing ahead of Dexcom. So therefore there's no commercial product. So it apparently has already taken effect out there. And also, so one, one other thing I do want to say is actually a lot of the closed loop trials right now, so a lot of the artificial pancreas stuff is happening behind closed doors. They're all trying to work on kind of like systems that are more 100% systems that kind of um, do a better job, more automated, manage more, and not only deliver insulin, but also glucagon, what can push my blood sugars up if need be. They're very complicated systems. And as a diabetic, if I can have something that can give me just a 10% improvement on my life, I'll take it now. Right. So you're kind of saying like uh, that they've tried to push for the perfect solution, whereas something that's half as good, we're still going to improve everyone's lives by a measure. I guess it could be the model because, you know, when you're trying to get FDA stuff when you're trying to run trials, it's a big expense. So I guess they're, they've got to think, OK, we want to make a big stab at this. We want to make sure it's a really good product if we're going to invest all this money in getting it signed off with the FDA. So it could be basically the regulatory process that drives that. It most definitely can be. And it's interesting because I speak to some professionals in that area regarding the work. And you can see they kind of fight internally between their kind of medically trained side of them and their inquisitive kind of interest side and one bit they're kind of offensive that you're even considering doing some stuff and the other side is kind of respectful the fact that you're trying to help yourself as a patient you know reduce your burden on yourself and the health like the nhs we have to rely on and one of the questions i remember getting asked before was how do you know this is helping your diabetes if you don't have the statistics and my reply was i feel more empowered as a patient and that in itself, if that's what we're getting from this, feeling more empowered, that, that, that's quite a big achievement. I think it also goes like, as you're saying, like technology is moving so fast now and it's moving faster and faster. It's it's going to be increasingly difficult for organizations, especially if they, they'll have to innovate in their, in their models, their decision making models and governments as well in terms of their funding and everything in order to keep with the times as technology you know, is going to be enabling people, enabling these kind of things, which is really cool. But I think it is going to challenge these organizations to change the way they work because, you know, I think decisions are made really at a lag. It takes years to kind of make decisions and move things into the market. And I guess that's kind of where frustration is, is coming for you guys, wanting to just like go with the technology and what's possible versus waiting for those processes to take place. Definitely. Like the NHS, I'm statistically a good diabetic. And from, a diabetic, from the NHS uh, paperwork perspective, that's great. From a quality of life and how long I'm going to live, I'm not as good as I possibly can be. So to say I'm a good diabetic is fine, but don't prevent me from, from making my life, quality of life better. I want to go beyond this a bit of a diabetic. I want to do the best I can because at the end of the day, it's going to be my life that's going to suffer from this. So to, to, the ability to, to be empowered so I can help that is a significant mental win. Excellent. I think it's exciting times of all the health tech that's coming up. This is going to be more more the case where we have these options to kind of push forward 
ourselves if we want to solve things and make our lives better. So there's going to be a lot of uh, things like this coming up in the future. Okay, last question for you. Uh, we asked this question of everyone. What would be your number one recommendation, like based on your personal experience using these kind of things in terms of using data to make better decisions about your health? And, and to others, if they just want to use data, what would you suggest is kind of like the number one recommendation for this? So it's all well and good, my phone telling me something and then me just reacting on it. If I don't understand why it's telling me that, then I'm just going down a dangerous path. You know, I need to have an understanding of why things are being recommended, you know, why trends have come up that are not there before. You know, you, having systems like this don't mean your diabetes goes away. It means you get a better understanding of it. So if you don't try and understand that information, um, that's not good. Excellent point. Thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You know, we went over a little bit longer and everything. I, th I think this is relevant to a lot of different areas and what you guys are doing is kind of at the forefront just because of your specific situation. So it's interesting to everyone. It's also interesting to add, actually. It's also going into other um, areas. So I have a guy who's trying to build a deaf community based on hearing aids, basically, hearing aid community. And they're trying to raise the same hashtag now, we're not waiting and develop their own open source hearing aid because of the cost of it so high. So it's, it's, it's contagious. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be exciting times, I think, five, like next five, 10 years. The technologies are getting simpler, right, in terms of trying to use them. Because I understand you weren't, you're not even a developer. I, I think I read that like somewhere. No, no, I'm, I'm an IT professional, but the program is a hobby uh, and I kind of get the gist of it. But no, I'm not a developer. And now I'm producing an app that gives medical suggestions. That's, that's, that's pretty nuts. The, the barrier of entry is so low. And the tech... Well, my insulin pump is like seven years old, the technology. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You know, right? It's insane. Would you walk around with a seven-year-old laptop? So the technology is not new. It's, it's not expensive to produce. It's just the markups. Really appreciate having you on the podcast. It's been a great episode. You've got this hands-on experience. And you're pushing things forward. So it's a really interesting perspective on kind of like a DIY approach to making things better for yourself and using the tech out there. So thanks a lot for coming in today. It's been a pleasure and um, to everyone on there. There's a big community out there and they're really doing a lot of work. I'm only touching on a very tiny amount of it. So if you're interested, get out there, have a look around. There's a lot of really helpful people. To get more of the Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.